This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. started a series last week on uh, everyday church, looking at the, the way that church, uh, you should live uh, as Christians in the culture around us, in the, in the surrounding culture around us. And last week, what we basically talked about how the society has changed from what was you could call Christendom, where there was uh, 16 centuries of the church being at the centre of society, um, and that has changed. So from 300 AD, 325 AD, when Constantine said Christianity is going to be the official religion of, of the empire, Roman Empire, till, you know, over this last century, Christianity has, has culturally been at the centre uh, of Western society. It's not always done the right thing at the centre of Western society, uh, but anyway, that's, um, that's another story. But what we found is that... Uh, the, the, the world has changed, the worldview has changed, and now we've got this secular worldview where Christianity and religion has got no part in, in civic life and civic society, and Christianity has been pushed to the margins. Uh, and we talked a little bit last week about how do we respond to that change as, as, as Christians or people who are interested in faith, uh, how do we respond to that change in society? Because the reality is that if you express Christian views, uh, you're actually going to be on the outside. You're probably going to be seen as slightly uh, 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 weird or slightly off-beam, or you may be seen as being abhorrent. Maybe some of the things, some of the views you hold, if you have a biblical worldview, you might mention those at work or to your colleagues, and you're like, whoa, man, I, I, I don't know what you believe or how you believe in a God like that, but I, I just don't. And we find ourselves on the margins. And I said last week that... Um, this isn't a strange place that, that Christians have been. It's a strange place for us, but it's not a strange place for what Christians have been because in the first century uh, and for two, three hundred years, Christianity was on the margins. Christianity started on the margins. Jesus, as it were, lived on the margins. He didn't go to Roman palaces. He lived on the margins. Uh, and so we, we, took, we finished last week by saying, well, how does Peter, uh, we're looking at the letter of one Peter in bits and pieces, how does Peter... Uh, suggests we live and he says he says live such good lives talking to Christians in this pagan culture or secular culture live such good lives among the pagans so or non-Christians so that though they accuse you of doing wrong although they accuse you of being a little bit uh, off the mainstream off the main consensus they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits our good lives lived in the midst of a hostile Christian, hostile culture, demonstrate that Jesus is Lord. That's what we did last week. And what I want to do this week is I want to drill down that a little bit further. So how does that work out? How does that living good lives uh, in our culture that's anti-Christian, how does that work? And so I'm just going to jump into 1 Peter chapter 2, read, pray, and then we'll uh, go to work. So it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and following. Peter writes, Now you have tasted that the Lord is good. Coming to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. 
you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house or spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God to Christ Jesus. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock of offence that makes them fall. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, people on the margins, to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Father, we want to hear your instruction this morning about how we should live our lives in the midst of a culture that's rejected you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're building us together as a house, a temple of living stones. I pray, Lord Jesus, that would be a temple that brings you glory, a temple that uh, reaches into every nook and cranny of our society. Lord, I pray, help us to live as people on mission for you. Amen. It's, in, it's interesting. If you think about church, you probably think about a, a building that you attend. I remember uh, growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, the thought of a church without a building was fairly revolutionary. I used to go to a Methodist church, uh, which is quite funny because the Methodist churches used to think that anybody who didn't have a building was quite off-beam and weird. But actually, if you look back in Methodist history, John Wesley wasn't allowed to preach in buildings. He had to preach in fields and in factory gates and, uh, uh, and coal yards because he wasn't allowed in the church. But it's funny, by 150, 200 years after John Wesley, uh, anybody that didn't meet in a proper church building uh, was basically seen as weird. And um, I can remember my parents talking about house churches uh, that were starting to spring up. And I remember the kind of debate in the Methodist church about these house churches. You know, were they kind of weirdos and, you know, dodgy types who were starting churches in their homes with no one's permission? You know, or my mom and dad thought, well, this is great. This is what it was like in the, in the, in the first century where the Christians lived in homes. So there was this kind of uh, interesting debate. I remember when we uh, uh, moved here, uh, 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 somebody said to me, uh, actually, that moving here will make you feel like a proper church. It'll make you feel established. You used to be in a school in the west of Cheltenham. We moved to this nice building. And somebody said, oh, this will make you feel like a proper church. And, and it's true. In one sense, we've had more people have kind of found us since we've been here. Uh, but I remember one lady in our carol service a few years ago came to me and said, um, so who gave you permission to start this church then? I don't know what, what, what you would have said. I resist the temptation to say God. You know, that would have been a bit arrogant, wouldn't it? You know, but it was kind of like, who gave you permission? You can't just start a church. What is this? You know, where's, what's the denominational label? Where's the, where's the building? What's going on? This is dangerously, dangerously off beam. And um, I think her question represented this kind of Christendom thinking of church as established buildings and institutions. Uh, it, it, and it's kind of a bit of a drift away from what we find in, in first century Christianity. It's a bit of a drift away from what we find in Peter's letter. 
Because in the first century, there were no church buildings and hardly any institutional structures. There wasn't a pope or an archbishop or whatever. There were just the, 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 the eyewitnesses to Jesus who were moving from town to town, telling people about Jesus, living their lives in the towns, and, and churches were being established. In fact, the um, Christians gathered in homes and public spaces. The Greek word ecclesia, which sounds a bit like what sounds like ecclesiastical, doesn't it? Yes, you, it, you know, the word we get for church actually just means a gathered crowd. It, it's a gathered assembly. It's a, a crowd or that congregated, that's where we get congregation from, that congregated together with a purpose. So we've got to get away from this idea, particularly in this culture change, that churches buildings. And it's much more about you. So I think people have made that journey. So somebody, uh, I used to work at a, a church that had been a Baptist church in London. Uh, and uh, I remember one lady say, coming to me and saying, I was on the staff there, and she said, is the church open? So I said, well, I hope their hearts are open. And she went, no, 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 have you got a key? <laughs> you know, we've got this idea of a building, and we've start to understand now the church, the church is the people. The church is a crowd with a purpose. And the purpose is that we're, it should say it behind, we're caught up on God's mission to save and renew humanity in the whole of creation. We're gathered with, an, with a purpose. We're not just gathered randomly, we're gathered with a purpose. And it's interesting that, that ch- churches don't have mission, that they do a little bit of mission or a little bit of good stuff out there in community and the rest of the time they do church. No, actually, God's mission has churches. In other words, it's the, it's the wrong way around. It's not that we have a thing that we do as church occasionally called mission and then the rest of the time we do other stuff. No, what happens is God's mission to save and transform the world through Jesus has churches and they're the agent of doing it. That's how we get it done. Okay, so it's interesting. If you think about the Roman world, how did they project their power? Think about Roman world. How did they project their power? They projected it through Corinthian columns and porticos and grand buildings. How did you know that, that, that this is a Roman institution? How did you know that? If any, who's ever been to the, the, the centre of Rome, Forum in Rome? It's a fabulous, incredible. I just wish the buildings weren't, weren't ruins, but, you know, all there. You get a bit of the Colosseum, but I think, man, I'd love to have seen it. The power and the dignity and the glory of those buildings. And that's how culture projected itself. It says we're going to build these amazing buildings to show that we are the ruling power, that we're the ones who are influence. We'd build massive statues of emperors and kings to say, look, he's watching you, I'm here, this is my place, this is my power. That's how they projected themselves in civic buildings and temples. But actually, here's Christianity in the first century with no buildings. No colonnades, no, uh, no porticos. It's interesting, in Christendom, what did they do? They built big buildings with columns and colonnades and cathedrals and say, look, this is our glory and power. But then, there was not that. There was a sense where Peter talks about here, how are we going to project God's glory and power onto a world that doesn't love, doesn't care about Jesus? And he talked, Peter talks about this metaphorical building 
of the church. He talked about Jesus as the living stone or the the life-giving stone that the builders rejected. In other words, Jesus has been rejected by society. So for all their power and their great buildings and their acropolises and their forums, actually they've rejected the one thing, says Peter, that really makes something powerful and glorious and eternal and life-giving. They've rejected Jesus. And Peter says, now God's got a different agenda than just building a church building here. He's got an agenda of building people together. He's building people together. He's building an awesome temple with Jesus as the foundation stone constructed of living stones. That's you, Lord. I know sometimes it feels like that we're constructed of living stones. If you've been around church at all, you do tend to bash into each other, don't you? It is to be rather attritional. Relationships don't feel necessarily soft and easy. We get, we get shaped and crafted, then you get put next to somebody else. You know, God sort of puts you next to somebody else, and you get kind of cemented in. And, you, you know, and somehow, as, Paul, as Peter puts, those who are not a people become a people. You know, we've got really nothing in common. I mean, most of you think, I've got nothing in common with you. You know, you're a working class boy from the north and I'm a nice, educated person from the south. You know, I've got no reason to be your friend. But actually, the, the God has put us together. He's, he's created this building of living stones with Jesus as the cornerstone. Jesus as the foundation. That's what we're building on. And we get put together. So the person you're sitting next to might be your friend, but or you might think, I don't know them at all. And if you're a visitor, it's uncomfortable to start with, but sooner or later when God puts you in and crafts you and nets you and then puts you into this temple built of living stones. It's brilliant. We're connected by God's mercy, interlocking, cemented together community. Interestingly, in this gathered community of God's church, there are no priests there are no priests with robes. The idea in, the, in, in, old tem- in temples, pagan temples or the Jewish temple, was there was a priest who would go out to the people and then go into God's, God's holy place, talk to God and then come out and tell you what God says. There's no priests. In one sense, because we're all priests, we all have right. In the morning, in the evening, when you do, at lunchtime, you all have right. When you open your Bible, when you quieten your, vo- uh, your head, you've got a right to go right in to the very presence of God and come out as a priest, royal priest, to to tell people about Jesus. There's no special priests. There's no altar. And it's nice that we're here because there isn't an altar. But actually, there shouldn't be an altar because there don't need to be sacrifices, do there? There's been one sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus Christ. The cross is the altar. You don't need an altar. You don't need images of God. Who are the images of God in this particular building that God's building? Well, the obvious one is Jesus. He's the ultimate image of God. That's as Colossians, Paul says that. But who else are the image of God? But there's no priests, no altar, no bricks and mortar. No, there's no images at all. It's us. So how do you go to this temple that God is building? Well, it, do- it doesn't. You don't go. It's there. You know, if, have you ever seen The Matrix? It, it's, you just watch the first one. The other two are a waste of time. But <laughs> just the first one. And it says, you're in The Matrix. It's the, the guy who's, I can't do the actor, the, the voice, because it's an amazing voice. And he says, it's there. It's there when you go to sleep. It's there when you wake up. It's there when you 
pay your taxes, when you go to work. Yeah? And I think you could say, well, where's the church of God? It's there. It's everywhere. It's where you are with your friends, with community. It's, where, it's there when you go to work. It's there when you go to sleep. It's there, there when you go play golf. But here's the church, it's, 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 it's everywhere, the temple is located everywhere Jesus' followers were. Every Christian a royal priest, into God's presence, out to the world. Every Christian a little image of God. What does Christian mean? It means little gods, little Christs. That's what we are, little Christs. Every, the first century church wasn't a building you attended, but a viral community empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians, that Jesus, the living one, that people encountered. You didn't go, you met them. The temple grew and filled every corner and crevice of the towns and cities where people live. The book of Acts and church history tells us that first century community, first century Christian community was infectious. Their faith in Jesus, the crucified saviour, was contagious. People caught the message of Jesus by close proximity to the Christians they lived amongst. It was like this infectious disease. I remember, you know, if you've ever been to like New Wine or New Day or Stonely, all these camps where loads of people, or, you know, Glastonbury, you know, imagine the kind of diseases that are out there. I remember one doctor who was in our church used to say, oh, I think there's a sickness in the camp and it's airborne. You're like, you know, where is it? And that was what it was like to be around the Christian community. This, this message of Jesus was kind of airborne. You were around with the people and you caught it. They didn't say, okay, let's get a nice building and porticos and stuff and do all this stuff. They were out there and you caught it. And what happened is that it, uh, they described they turned the, t- they turned the world upside down. Yeah. They turned the world upside down. The community of Christians themselves was the only visible demonstration that, the, that Jesus lived, that the gospel was true. The church was the visible testimony that Jesus was the powerful ruler of everything. That's what Paul's saying in Romans when we did that. So you can't see him. They used to mock Christians. Where's your God? You can't see him. Where's the statues and buildings? Where's the power? But when they met the Christian community, they met God. They met the power. They met the vibrant message of Jesus. But something happened along the way. What happened to this vibrant gospel community with its contagious, life-giving message of Jesus? In short, what happened was Christendom. On one level, it feels like a great idea. Wouldn't it be great if, if we're the centre of everything? It, it, you know, if we, if we can put our big buildings in them, we'll knock down the pagan temples and we'll build our own big buildings and we'll demonstrate our own power in the middle of Rome and we'll have a pope and we'll have political kings bowing to the pope. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if, if the Christian community was at the centre? But you know what well, the problem with that, although in many ways it's a good thing, in many ways it's a bad thing because what it did is it inoculated the population against catching the real thing. So you just kind of went to church because that's what you did. You went to church because that was the cultural acceptable thing to do. So you didn't know who was a Christian or who wasn't. And slowly, but surely, the live good lives among the pagans became come to our meetings. Come to us. And for a thousand years, people did come. 
And slowly Christianity became focused on attending buildings, on Sundays and holy days with priests and altars and rituals. It lost the vibrant, contagious nature of gospel community. You know, and we're still like that. We're still like that. We don't have a religious building, but, but we've got a nicer building now, so more of you might come. People still don't relate to me as that guy that loses his temper on the 4th, 5th, 6th, 9th, and 15th hole of the golf course. They relate to me as, oh, you're the priest. You know, the one that goes into God and tells us each week. You know, it's not like that. There's a sense of free. And, and you want your ritual. You want your ritual. You know, maybe breaking bread's your ritual. Maybe worship is your ritual. You want your ritual. And what happened is that church becomes confined to its buildings and you can still do a good job of gathering Christians. But really what happens is the inoculated church, the church that just does Sundays, is impotent to change a world that's deciding that Jesus is something they're not interested in. We can't do anything about it. Steve Timmis and Tim Chester, in their book Everyday Church that I mentioned last week that prompted a lot of this uh, series, they did a little survey. The survey said there's about 10 to 20% of society are what's called churched. In other words, they get church. They understand church. They may be Christians. That's a smaller percent, about 3 or 4%. But they get church. Their parents went to church. They understand church. They've been to church. Some of those people might have decided they're not interested in church, but basically, they're church. The next 40% of this survey when the, is basically what, what Chester and Tim is called the de-churched. They've, they themselves have never ever been to church, but they've got a little bit of Christian background. You know, their parents or they went to, their parents are Christians or their partners are Christian or, or, or they, they, they can remember somewhere of going to church. They've got this idea of church, but somewhere along the journey, it became irrelevant. And basically, of, only, of that 40%, if you're tracking with me, only one in four, 10% of the de-church people will ever come to a church meeting. And then the last 40% is what Chester and Timmis on this survey said, called the unchurched, who've had never had any significant church at any time, and they'd never, ever, ever go to a church meeting, whatever you did. Okay? So basically, if you work it out, if you do it for Cheltenham, Cheltenham does the maths quite easy. Let's assume it's 100,000. My maths doesn't do it to 110, but let's assume Cheltenham's 100,000. In 2005, 6,000 people attended about the 60 churches of all different stripes. That leaves about 25,000 people in Cheltenham who might be interested in coming to a church. That's still a huge amount, isn't it? It's a lot of people, 25,000 people who might be interested in coming to a church building if we built friendship, if we built relationship with them and we invited them. So in one sense, that does matter, doesn't it? 25% does matter. So it does matter about Sundays. It does matter saying, why don't you come to the, to the quiz night? Why don't you come to the carol service? It does matter. Those things do matter. How we do Sundays do matter. We don't want people, when they come, if they ever dare to come, if they're not a regular church attender and they've got some history of church or some partner or some background who's, who knows about church and they come, we don't want to think they're weird, nutty, unfriendly, you know, off the wall. What we want them to think is, this is a real, 
vibrant, energetic community. It's friendly, it's authentic, it's real, it talks about real stuff. We want people to come and it to be understandable. But, but, also, but when people come, they're also going to be challenged. But we don't want them to be challenged because, you know, we're mean and nasty stones cracking against each other. If there is a challenge, it's maybe what you're going to do with Jesus. Are you going to reject him or accept him? So what we do on Sundays does matter. And some of those churched that no longer go to church or some of those de-churched are your friends. You might be married to one. You might, your parents might be churchgoers. Or, or you might know somebody at work who's got some kind of church connection, but they've fallen off. They might recall some of the Jesus story, but they've dismissed the church as relevant. Mark and I play golf with this guy who's, or you could call him a de-churched guy. In his 30s, uh, he used to go to church. He used to go to a Methodist church. I don't know if he had faith in Jesus. But about, in it, but about 30, in his mid-30s, he had a tough moment in his life and he walked away from his Methodist church and he walked away from God. Now, he knows what I do. The fact that he's de-church, he gets a little bit about church. The fact that I, he, this, he knows what my job is, do, it doesn't put him off too much, unless he's whispering to Mark saying, you know, whatever. But, you know, it doesn't put him off too much. But the reality is, he's not really open to talking about spiritual stuff. Occasionally, we have a, he says, oh, what are you talking about? Or how's it going? But he's not really open to talking about spiritual stuff. Now, obviously, I'm trying to play golf. I'm interested in getting a good score. I'm not desperately trying to evangelize him all the time. But I'm, I would like him to have a conversation. One time he did say, you know, it's interesting that, how do you find community now? Said I used to when I used to go to church, I used to find that I, I had I had lots of community, I knew lots of people. He says now I don't know many, you know I love my wife, my kids, my family, but I don't know many folks. And he felt like, oh he's opened up, but then closed down. You invite him to quit, to carol service, oh I'm busy, and then you say how did you how did you think that you were doing go, and well I don't know whether he was doing something or not, I don't know, but he definitely don't want to come. I invited him to the quiz night last week, well not really. You know, but I'm going to keep going because he's a mate now. We play a lot of golf and we hang out together and we have, a, you know, we have lunch sometimes and he, he's a mate. But I'd love him to, to come and see us. It's interesting, one or two of you have played golf with me and him. And what is interesting is what he reflects on is they're really nice guys. Obviously, when it's just Mark and I, that's not really the case. But when it's somebody like Andy Wilson, who's a lovely chap, you know, or, or a Dan or whoever, I don't know who else, Josh. Actually, Josh, maybe your golf was so bad that maybe... Did, but <laughs> or Paul. What he said to me one time, he said, you know what's surprising? Is your friends from church are really good, really nice guys. Not good golfers, but they're really nice guys. And I thought that's great, isn't it? Because there's something about, if he got really close to this Christian community, if he got really close, he'd think, whoa, there's something about you guys. That's interesting. Tom had a friend uh, as a work colleague who came to, you invited him, invited a, a, a friend of his, and, um, and he basically came and was massively impacted, wasn't he? It was like, wow, this is something, maybe God's here. This was, he was like a bit in tears, a bit like didn't know, not, not knowing what's to go on. And we're saying, are you coming next week? Well, he hasn't been back, has he? You know, but I'm saying is there's people out there in the 25% who are going to come. And we should invite them. Yeah. We should invite them. We should, I, I don't, yeah, we need to be bold at inviting people into our community. 25, uh, thousand people is a lot of people who might say yes. If you're single here, let me just say, there's a yes out there. 
There's a yes out there. I mean, even I'm married. You know, there's a, I, it took me a long time. I was 30, nearly 31, but there was a yes out there. Yeah? And, and so there's a yes out there for you if you're single. But if you're a Christian and you want to invite your friends to church, there's a yes out there. You may not find many, but the, the, the stats say that 30% of the people will come. Most of the people that are becoming Christians, and, and this is good, but it's also bad, come to a church meeting of some kind, an alpha course or a church meeting, they become Christians. And that's all great, isn't it? But the big question, what are we going to do about the 70% of people who have no intention of ever coming here? What are we going to do? Pray for them, thank you. Do you want to? <laughs> it's interesting. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Tim Chester, talking about this in their book, says, new styles of worship won't reach them. Sorry, Andy and Graham. As good as we're going to get, they aren't bothered. You know, we have the best worship band in the world. They ain't coming. Because Colpay are better. You know, they're not, they're not coming. New styles of worship will not reach them. Fresh expressions of church won't reach them. If we said, let's have coffee bars... And donuts, they still aren't coming. Evangelism courses won't reach them. Guest services won't reach them. Churches meeting in pubs won't reach them. We used to meet in a pub. Nobody came but weird people. <laughs> Not Christ- weird Christians. <laughs> in fact, Chester says, in fact, they would not turn to church even if faced with difficult personal circumstances or in the event of national tragedy. Their dad dies, their mum dies, there's cancer, there's breakdown, there's sickness, they're not coming. Something terrible happens, there's a bomb in Manchester, there's a a breakdown, there's, there's chaos. They're not coming. So what is the answer? The unchurched don't need inviting to a meeting, we need to do what the first century church does. They need to meet us. They need to meet us. They don't need attractive church meetings. They need attractive church community. They need you. Jesus put it like this in the passage. It's often too familiar to us. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket or a bowl. Instead, a lamp is placed on the stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, it's almost similar to what Peter says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out to all to see so that everyone may praise your Father in heaven. What we want to do at God First is we want to reboot the way we do church. We try and we keep having to reset but we're going to try and reset what we do, how we do church, and we're going to reboot our God-first communities. And what we're trying to say is, actually, the culture that we're in, the world we're in, where 25,000 people might come if we connected with them, and 70,000 people are never going to come unless we meet them. We've got to change the way we do it. We've got to change the do. We must reach out beyond the confines of our Sunday meetings and our midweek groups. It's not that belonging or making friends or pastoral care isn't important. These are the products of a church community rather than its ultimate goal. Let me say that again. It's not that belonging or making friends or pastoral care or fellowship aren't important. It's that these are the product of a church community rather than its ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal? Well, you think, well, it's obvious, isn't it? I'm telling you about it today. But Peter says, he says, gospel community is for God's mission. 
You are a chosen people, hand-picked, hand-chosen, died for. A royal priesthood. You've got special access to the Father. A holy nation. God's special possession. Why? Those amazing community words, chosen, priesthood, nation, collective, there's identity and togetherness. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now you could, if you have a Christendom world way of thinking, think, thinks, well, we better have great worship meetings to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. And that's fine, and we do do that, and that matters. But actually, we've got to get outside. We've got to get outside. And that doesn't mean we used to go out. When I was a, a kid, we, used to, we thought going, declaring the praises of Jesus was actually what we did. We'd get like seven of us with a, with a guitar, one guy with a guitar. Uh, uh, he always had a rainbow uh, uh, strap before rainbow be, became stolen by another campaigning group. And we'd go out on the streets and, and we'd sing, sing choruses rather embarrassed. We'd sing about Jesus rather embarrassed on the street and we thought, this is the way. This is the answer. We're declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness. Into, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's better than sitting in the church and hoping for the best. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's, uh, I mean, Finney, American evangelist Finney said, the evangelism you're doing that's not work, it, it, that I'm doing is better than the evangelism that you're not doing. You know what I'm saying? So if we never get out, going and singing on the streets is better than sitting here and hoping for the best. But I don't think he means that. I don't think Peter means that. I don't think that he means actually we've got to get out there. We've got to, we've got to live as, uh, as, as missionaries in the hostile culture. We've got to live like the first century church as missionaries in a hostile culture. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Total Church, different book, said to people, try and imagine that you're re- relocating as a small church planting team to predominantly non-Christian cross-cultural context. In other words, there's just about eight or nine of you. You're going to move to a place where you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, and they're not interested in Jesus. That's the context. And then they ask some questions. Think about how you'd respond. Think if we sent you somewhere like that, Nepal. Inland China, I don't know, Cheltenham. What criteria would you use to decide where you lived? What standard of living would you expect? How would you make your friends? What would you spend most of your time doing? What things would you be desperately playing for? When you came together as a church planting team, what would you do? It's funny, when you put it in that context, it's different from what we do, isn't it? What would you, where would you decide to live? You'd decide to live where you could have most contagious impact on people that are, are Christians around you. Not Christians, around you. You would do that. What standard of living would you expect? you say, well, maybe I might have to live in an area where actually it's not so nice and comfy. How would you make friends? you think, well, I better get out there. You know, I don't like coffee, but I'm going to the coffee shop. I don't like golf, but I'm going, well, I don't know. I don't like this, but I'm going there because I want to make some friends. I want to hang out with the people that hang out. What would you pray for? God, would you come? Would you build your church? Would you see some of them become Christians? The thing is, and you know where I'm going, that this, we are missionaries in this culture. But we don't think like that. We tend to think that the, the culture's already Christian or already done. And we do our church things and we get together and do our, our meetings and the community. But actually we forget that we're living as missionaries. How do we communicate the good news of Jesus? Today, people are unpersuaded by clever arguments, but authentic lives 
genuine community and loving relationships compellingly point to Jesus in the 21st century like they did in the 1st century. Even when lived by flawed people relying on God's grace. You don't have to be perfect, you just have to be doing it with Jesus. Loving actions and loving communities are the biblical argument for the gospel. Through the life of the Christian community, the world discovers what it's truly like to live in relationship with God. People have got no idea what it's like to be a Christian. No idea how it works in everyday life. When they encounter you and your friends who are Christians, they get it. You might say, oh, read this book. They're never going to read it. But they're reading your life all the time. We don't want to just do stuff in here. We need to get out there. Mission is more than church events. Our lives are to be missional events. Living everyday lives with gospel purpose in such a way that the only explanation for what we do is the gospel. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? And I mentioned this a few, a few weeks ago. Um, somebody said about, uh, about Naomi and Mark Clements, oh, I could tell you go to that same church because it's just, you know, there's something about you. And I would say, I would hope that's happening around where you are. There's something about you people. Not that you're weird and out of touch and annoying, but there's something about the way you live that's attractive, contagious, interesting. Today, the way that the majority of people who'd never come to a church meeting is going to understand the gospel is if we live it out there in community. Our lives have to be seen. Over the next few weeks, I'm landing here, over the next few weeks, uh, uh, we're going to relaunch our community groups with a missional focus. Most of the leaders at this point are the ones that have been leading before. But I don't want the groups to be the same. Because what has slowly happened is we started off as a church that, that was doing this kind of live out there. So I'm, I'm not picking on you, Tom, particularly, but I'm commending how good you were. At the beginning, Tom would have birthday parties uh, for his kids and invite his, his friends from Presbury and then the church, the church when it was 10, 15 people would all pile around his house he'd have a bonfire night, he'd go for a walk he did that because he was living as a missionary and I'm not saying you're not living as a missionary now but it's easy to get busy with the church isn't it and we want to reboot what we did we don't wanna, we're not doing something new it's almost like back to the start we're saying this is how we started this church let's reboot it so each new group will probably focus around a neighbourhood. It'll focus around maybe Bishop's Cleave or Central Cheltenham. It might focus around a, a specific group of people like students. It might even pick out a particular passion. Things that people like to do that we, that we might pick up. But basically what each God First community is going to be around 10 or 11 people and we're going to try to live as missionaries to our neighbourhood. Trying to think, what can we do? What can we do that connects? At the Together Night on the 24th of January, we're going to highlight each group, and we're going to ask its leaders to say what they're going to do, and then we're going to ask to say, sign up. Express an interest. Who do you want to be with? But more than that, not who, which leaders do you like. It's not a, a vote, you know, best church leader, best God-first community leader. Where do you live? Where do you want a mission? Where do you want to connect with people? So we might shuffle our groups around. And some of you have got great groups and think, that's really uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. 
And some of you might have terrible groups and think, I'm so glad we're shuffling the groups. My group sucks. I'm moving. But we're not trying to do that. What we're trying to say is let's focus on mission. Let's focus. If we live in Bishop's Cleave or Presbury or the villages around, let's get together and think, how can we reach those places? If we're in Central Cheltenham, different demographic, different people, how can we reach those places? We need to be caught up. It's like that first century church, without buildings and systems and stuff, as people, the organic community, the temple in every crevice, the presence of God in every corner of where we live. Let me finish with this. Guy Hudson Taylor, he's got it. I am a missionary. I'm going to change how I live. It's going to cost me. I'm going to get out of comfort and out there. In the next 50 years, Hudson Taylor inspired over a thousand missionaries, missionary just means sent ones, to, to leave the UK and the United States for China. They were guaranteed no salary or funds. He told them you must simply trust God with your needs. These missionaries would adopt Chinese dress, Chinese customs, and press the gospel into the middle of China. Hundreds died or were killed. When the communists came to power in 1949, there were 6,000 missionaries in China and nearly a million Christians. In 2010, there are more than 58 million evangelical Christians in China. By 2025, there'll be 160 million. More Christians in China than the United States. 8% of China will be Christian. 4% of Cheltenham. We don't need to go to China now. Secular culture has come to us. Let me finish with this quote. Hudson Taylor wrote this. China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and the souls of men and women first and foremost, everything. I'll say it again. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and the souls of men and women first and foremost in everything and at every time even life itself must be secondary extreme maybe but it changes a nation changes a nation i'm not expecting you to have the impact that hudson taylor had but we can start to invade the secular space we can start to do good works amongst the poor we can start to live out there without buildings and rituals, as a living temple. What was Jesus' missionary strategy? He came from heaven. He didn't stay in heaven where it was all nice and comfortable, loving his Father, enjoying the Holy Spirit, being delighted by the angels. He crossed the culture, crossed the great divide, from divine to flesh. He dwelt amongst us. John writes, we've beheld his glory. No temple or building, we beheld his glory. One living like God, the image of the invisible God. He loved so much, not China, 
but the world so much. God so loved the world, you know this, so much that he gave himself. He didn't have missionary support or an organization behind him. He gave himself. It's a challenge to me. You know, I'm not there. We're not there. But we want to press in. Jesus gave himself. He's alone on the cross, just him. Cries out in the, as his body's broken, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was just him. There was no one. His body was broken. But his body created a community called out by the grace of God. His body created a people who are not a people, knitted them together. And now his, the faith of Jesus is still contagious. You, re, you just Google what's happening in Iran with the gospel. It's contagious. Jesus' body broken, our sins forgiven, ourselves knitted into a new community by his blood. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.